0: I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And And if we we can't can't find find common common ground ground in this this world world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together. To debate without yelling. And And let's let's save save this nation.
1: nation. The host of the Deconstructed Podcast, From The Intercept, Ryan Grimm, coming up next on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Goldco. Welcome back
0: to Vincent Jason Save the Nation. I'm Vince Colonays. He's Jason Nichols, and he's introducing our next guest. Jason, go for it.
1: So first thing I got to say about our next guest is that he is a Maryland guy. So you know that I love Maryland, uh, and he is even better than just being a Maryland guy. He's a he's a Terp. So we have that in common.
2: Fear the turtle.
1: Fear the turtle. You already know what it is. (laughs) Ryan Grimm from The Intercept. I'm really excited to have him and and hear his perspective. There's so much going on. It's so much to talk about. So, um, you know, Vince, I'll let you kind of, you know, spark us off here in this conversation. Yeah. Well,
0: actually, one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you today, Ryan, and thank you for doing this, is... um, you know, we're in like a really uh, big economic upheaval right now in the United States. And we're watching as the supply chains are all out of whack. And there's all sorts of questions about why is this happening? What are the causes of it? And what's going on with specifically American labor? I know you do a lot of reporting on American labor. As you're watching all of this, what are you learning? Is there anything that you're I mean, for instance, like with, with uh, American trucking, I've, I've been really stunned to see just the, the extent of the shortages of american truckers the the average age of american truckers very much older than typical jobs uh and you know all of a sudden a lot of americans are now feeling it in their wallet as they're seeing that products are much more expensive because there's just too few people to get those products to them so what what are you thinking as
2: you're seeing all this it's it's been interesting to watch this unfold because my my entry into the political world was in the you know in the 1990s, as a college student to to date, what what generation I'm from, the the big left movement at the time was the anti globalization movement, and this was a a basically a coalition of of labor, uh, kind of third world, a lot of third world countries movements in third world countries and environmentalists saying that what what's happening you know post the fall of the Soviet Union is is unsustainable and exploitative and that yes it, it's going to work in the short term you know if you you know move your factory you know from you know bethlehem pennsylvania uh, first you know down to south carolina to break the union and then you know once there's a little bit of union activity in south carolina you move it to mexico and when 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 you get a little problem in mexico and you can find something cheaper you move it to china like okay yes like quarter by quarter that that's going to work for your bottom line it's going to work for your executives yes. but but it's not going to work for the world it's sorry not going can to work i just for the people of the world
0: can you clarify something
2: you said third world countries were opposed to it too why was that because uh so social movements within third world countries um felt like so the uh, the IMF world bank and WTO were like central targets of this of the anti-globalization movement right, right. they've kind they've kind of moved off center stage, you know, to a significant degree. But what, what would happen is the IMF would come into, you know, somewhere in, you know, Central America, somewhere in Africa, uh, somewhere in Southeast Asia, and they'd say, we, you know, you have this debt problem, we will solve your debt problem. But in order to solve your debt problem, uh, you have to uh, cut taxes on the rich, Uh, you have to cut your social spending for the poor. Uh, And you have to agree to all of these other uh, draconian measures, the, basically austerity. Uh, that mm-hmm. they and the, and the term for it was structural adjustment. And essentially what they would do is they would fund a project, let's say a dam, a road. Uh, a, the money would all flow to the top. Uh, the project would be often poorly built or not built at all. The, whatever kleptocrat had accepted the loan would then be ousted in some uprising or would just flee the country, take the money with them. And now the country is much deeper in debt, but also has much less social spending and a lower tax base on, on, its, on, on, its, on its elites. And so it created this cycle where instead of developing in a post-colonial area era, they were, they were slowly collapsing and going deeper and deeper into poverty. And the solution then would be more structural adjustment. Oh, you want us to get you out of this? We've got a World Bank loan for you right here. Here are the conditions that are on it the the leaders of those countries were fine with that because they would just steal the money and then leave right right uh the people in the country were like this is not working right okay All right. so so you were so explaining so how, how, how the anti-globalization
0: so left uh you know was there prevalent in the 90s and then kind of petered right. out i this would be kind of like you know we felt bernie sanders was was a part of this right and uh and expressed that kind of being one of the only people who opposed uh, China's entry into the That's World right. Trade Organization
2: for sure and and this and it petered out quite specifically because of 9/11 like there was actually like a, a massive uh, there was a massive demonstration the IMF planned for September 2001 end of September 2001 and it it got canceled and replaced with an with like an anti-war march and so all of the energy that had been spent on kind of trying to combat globalization and try to try to bring some rules to it, try to, you know, protesting the WTO saying that, you know, the WTO should not be like a world government. This, it should not supersede national governments. Mm -hmm. Um, All of that energy went into opposing the Iraq war, which, uh, you know, was futile. It turned out the war, the war went off anyway. And you didn't really see that energy come back until Occupy Wall Street. A lot of the people, the people who were involved in Occupy Wall Street were actually, in we're actually also involved in the anti-globalization we're like leaders of those protests so um it's it's interesting to see the 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 rotten fruit that globalization is bearing yes so in other words like
0: right now in this moment
2: it's exposing our
0: vulnerability Mm -hmm. that that you know we all of our supply chains come from essentially most of them come from offshore and we're watching as all of these ships are Stuck at our ports, they're not able to get all these supplies in, uh, and there aren't enough American workers to move those supplies into the country. It's just a disaster top to bottom. And so, what I've been kind of hoping for, uh, Ryan and Jason, is that you know maybe the costs are so high as a result of all of this, maybe the silver lining is that we we onshore, reshore mm-hmm. some of this manufacturing again, some of these American jobs so that one, it's more cost-effective, and two, it's just better for the country. Like, you know, helps develop thriving, flourishing mm-hmm. American working
1: families. So, so I, I just wanna kinda, um, you know, from, from your perspective, Ryan, do you think that the answer to globalism is protectionism?
2: Well, so, I mean, to some degree you would, you, if you define protectionism, as a level playing field like in other words if if we have climate standards or environmental standards or wage laws that other countries don't have Mm -hmm. then i think it's entirely fair to say that if you're if you're building your products by destroying the world and exploiting people then you you have to uh pay a little bit more to import them so that our, our workers can compete with, with their workers. So that gets defined sometimes as protectionism because the counter argument would be there should be no protectionism. And if, the, if these Chinese laborers are willing to work for you know $3 a day, then American workers should be willing to work for $3 a day and the market should solve it. And you're just protecting labor against these market forces. So in that sense, I would be for I'd say that some type of protectionism is required if you're going to, as long as you have oh, a
0: globalized world. But why should that manifest itself in like the form of a tariff? Why don't we just ban
2: manufacturing mm-hmm. that fails to meet our standards? A lot of uh, some countries have talked about doing that. Um, some do. I, I'd be for you know, certain, some, some of that for sure. Right. I mean, you, have, you have to get to a place where you're self-sufficient. Like, you no, know, right now we're not there. Like even the things that we manufacture here in the United States often require parts medicine. We're like completely dependent even like I was reading the other day, like lazy boys or something like, we'll like, we'll like do the cushiony part, but the metal part has to be imported. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like make our own sedentary objects.
0: Right. It's like cars too. Right. It's like, Mm -hmm. which is highly regulated. Like some, like there's heavily percent like tons of materials produced out of the country. And then like, sort of that last mile production is like, oh, we, we screwed something together and now right. we can deliver it and call it American assembled or something. Well, I think that there's,
2: yeah, I built this sofa.
1: I think that there's a few things we need to do domestically. Um, number one, we need to end prison labor because that undercuts the American worker. So, you know, what we've seen on the right is, hey, let's privatize prisons, let's use prison labor, um, which, again, even more arguably even more so than than offshore labor prison labor where they can pay you 90 cents, you know, an hour or whatever, um, is something that undercuts all of this and, and. Or
2: my amendment to that would be make labor laws apply to prisoners.
1: Or that like, too, yeah.
2: Like this ninety cent, this ninety cents a day stuff, because a lot of prisoners actually do want to do something. Yeah, like right. if if their choice is just you know sitting around the day room, or actually like having an you know eight hours where they where they go to do something, believe it or not, you know a lot of them will choose that because it's it's getting it's breaking up the routine, and but pay them, like pay them an actual wage so that they can you know share that wage with their family, uh, they can buy what they need. Um, You know, while they're there, and they can save up money so that when they leave, they're not completely broke, and facing all of these fines and fees and uh, give them a a better chance to avoid
1: recidivism. I'll add an amendment to your amendment. Um, And that is that not only should we do that, we should have them do things where they learn skills Mm -hmm. that are marketable, rather than just putting together IKEA furniture, that you actually Mm -hmm. learn a skill whether it's furniture making or something like that, and and you can actually transfer. I don't knock assembling
0: that. IKEA furniture. I can't do that. My wife <laughs> yeah. has that skill. <laughs> yeah. I, I do not. They can start there.
2: Yeah. Right. If, yeah if that's Vince, right. if you if you go to prison, you got to start there. No. But I'm, once you once you show that you can put a desk together, then then you can move on. I can't and, wield and an Allen wrench. Um, basics of some plumbing.
0: It's it's amazing. Okay, so going back to sort of this current moment, then you know what. I'm I'm struggling to figure out what do we do about um, American trucking? So like, obviously we need it. Commercial driving, one of the biggest jobs in the country in many states, number one job in the States. Um, Yet there is a massive shortage to deliver these goods. And the end result is that everybody's paying a lot more for them. And and inflation, uh, it truly a regressive burden hits the poorest, the hardest. So how do we resolve this?
2: What can we do? I think one thing we have to do long-term is invest in rail because rail is
1: mm-hmm.
2: massively cheaper, massively more efficient, massively more uh, you know climate conscious. Like the the, the the amount of energy that it takes to move a piece of cargo on rail versus uh, on a truck is the orders of magnitude different. Uh, so the more that you can move on move by rail, then the fewer trucks you need on the road. So that that's one. Then then the other I think would just be. Um, improving, improving the working conditions. Um, Right now, it's very difficult to have a life as a trucker. Like if you want to have a family or you want to have any type of semblance of like a normal life, because they're they're because you're pushed to do these like, you know, 40 hours, like the the hours are just obscene. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe they could figure some way out, you know, they need, they need to, they need to, to talk to the workers to figure out what kind of conditions are needed. Cause it's, you know, pay is obviously, you know, central, the more you pay, you know, the more people are going to be willing to do it. Uh, but not, but not squeezing every last a drop of blood out of people, I think might help get more people into it. Yeah. Too, because so I think pay, you drive, is, you can, pay is, yeah. has shot up, especially right. over just the last year. I think the
0: average I was seeing yesterday, the average um, annual earning of a truck driver now was in the vicinity of $60,000 or so. Uh, And that number keeps creeping up because there's just such a
2: shortage. And if you do more rail, then your trips are going to be shorter. Mm -hmm. Like you shouldn't need to be driving across the country.
1: Right. If we
0: were more, if we were more rail dependent, wouldn't, wouldn't that decrease pretty dramatically the number of available jobs in, in transportation?
2: Well, apparently we don't have a problem of too few jobs in transportation. You know, our problem is too few workers.
0: All right, more with Ryan Grimm in a moment. But before we get back to that, I do want to say you got to check out the great folks over at Grunt Style. Grunt Style, great apparel company, has so many veterans working for them, so many hundreds of Americans working for them. They produce great patriotic clothing that Jason Nichols and I love. And uh, Jason, you know, you want to dress in style, you wear Grunt Style.
1: Absolutely. Go to GruntStyle.com. Put in that uh, discount code STN. Get some really, really good stuff. You'll, you'll, you know, we're coming up on hoodies, uh, hoodie season. Get some good hoodies, get some patriotic messages. Also, find some stuff for all you dads your grilling shirts, your peeing outside shirts. If you're like me, <laughs> uh, and you like being outside and doing outdoorsy stuff, uh, they employ lots of veterans and they support a lot of causes, uh, for veterans like people who are suffering from PTSD and homelessness. Uh, it's a really good company that does really right. good work. And we both actually wear and buy stuff off the site. So, hell this yeah. Is, uh, something that we personally endorse. So, go to gruntstyle.com, definitely put in STN uh, in the discount code and get that 10% discount.
2: Yeah, I think we should always be looking to, you know, if if pe- people are afraid of automation, but I don't think they should be. Like, if you that can. Was my
1: question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you about automation and, you know, there are people on the left or, you know, depending on what you think the left is, but there, there, you know, people like Elizabeth Warren who have actually, you know, praised automation and lauded automation as something that's going to be good for the labor market in the future. And then there are others who say that this is actually going to cost us lots of jobs and lots of good paying jobs. And now of course, Uh, isn't it Tesla that that they're trying to work on these self-driving trucks? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, So what what is your opinion? Is automation going to be something that's good for the labor market in the long run, or is it something that's going to cost us jobs? Um, I I think
2: it'll be good in the long run because the jobs that can be automated are are crap jobs that people don't want to do and are only doing um, because it's it's a paycheck. It's a way to make ends meet. And so there, there will always be, um, there will always be work to do. Like the, 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 the implicit fear in, in the, in automation is if we automate all of this stuff, then where are the jobs going to go? But there will always be jobs. Like there, there will always be work that needs to be done by people. Um, and if we get to a place where people can do slightly less work, you know, that, Instead of fifty hours a week being, you know, an average week, you can get it down to forty, back down to forty, mm-hmm. or, even, or even down to thirty-five. That's okay too. Like that's that's a better that's a better society. And if all of the same work is getting done, plus some, then there's no loss of wealth. Right, but
0: I guess th- there's a lot of unknowns here, which is I don't I, I'm I'm I wonder how you can be so confident. That's all because it, it seems like that first of all not everybody's built to do the same type of labor for sure and some people are better have more aptitude than others in certain fields right so obviously we're becoming more over time we've become more of a service economy we've become more of like a creative economy uh there's you know there's if if you're creative and, and and smart and and nimble you can you can thrive in this economy but sort of the muscular economy the the sweat economy there are like fewer and fewer jobs available as as technology advances, as things become more efficient, as mechanization comes along. Um, we're, and so when we're talking about commercial driving, as I mentioned, if not the number one, certainly up there as one of the top jobs in the entire country, if all commercial driving becomes automation, if, you're, if your Uber picks you up and it's automated, if your trucks are all um, operated by robots, uh, you know, That seems like pretty dramatic disruption. I know Mm -hmm. over time we've referred to it as like creative destruction, that the market will sort it out. There will be jobs for people. But, you know, when I hear things like, oh, well, you know, forget your coal mining job. We need to train you to build solar panels or whatever. It's like, this just sounds like a fantasy. It doesn't actually sound like, 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 but, I, but I don't know, just like the idea but, that, like, don't worry, it'll all work out so, is so, not that comforting to me. That's all.
1: But if we if we if we look at history as, you know, um, something that is, uh, you know, an example of what will happen in the future when we've gone through these big shifts in labor markets, for example, when we went from an agrarian economy where yes. you had lots of farm workers and then you got the cotton gin which basically was like, you know, old school automation, you know, people were like, Oh my God, this is going to get rid of so many jobs. And then people found other work to go into the new economy. Yes. So I, I think that's the argument. That's true. Um, but don't, but we have a lot of burn. Yeah, we out go through an adjustment, but we have a lot of like burned
0: out towns. And I think a lot of that is obviously what Ryan was talking about just a couple of minutes ago, just all this mm-hmm. offshoring of manufacturing, but offshoring and manufacturing and automation, both, uh, lead towards this, those same ends. And so I don't know the evidence that like, oh, it's all gonna be fine and there's gonna be plenty of jobs available. I don't know if it's there. I, I feel like this inevitably heads toward like universal basic income. Like, oh, people don't have jobs. They don't have anything meaningful that they can do. And therefore the government needs to start cutting them checks.
2: I think that, so there's a, a little bit of a difference between a, a plant closing down and, and opening up somewhere else because then that, does, that is a net loss of wealth for the community. Um, and it, it's a net transfer to a different community, uh, and you know the electric vehicles are going to be a, are a good example of this. You know, it's much it's much more uh, labor intensive to build old school cars, like just I mean, look at them. Like there's just thousands of pieces that you slap that you have to keep in working order. Yeah. Uh, whereas these new electric vehicles, the battery just powers the wheels, you know, and, you know, you need brakes and wheels, basically, you know, it's, it's, they they end up being, you know, much simpler vehicles. Uh, and so as a result, you need a tiny fraction of the workers. And so a lot of the UAW is, is genuinely, you know, and rightly concerned that as we shift to electric vehicles, there are going to be a lot of jobs lost, uh, mechanics, you know, who have, you know, trained their entire lives, uh, working on old school cars and, you know, uh, doing tune-ups and working on carburetors and, right, um, you know, a lot of that is not going to be necessary because that's the engines are much simpler. Uh, and so that there you're, you're going to have significant disruptions. There's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but then the question is, you know, do the, do you know you're so but you you end up making the same amount of the society makes the same amount of products and this produces the same amount of wealth but does so for less labor and this there's a famous um, i think it was i think it was adam smith who talks about you know the the the, the pin factory his 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 like pin factory analogy where he's, he's he says there's okay so if there's a pin factory and it takes you know uh, 20 guys a day to make you know 100 needles somebody comes along with an innovation in the factory and now it only takes 10 guys to make that the same number of needles. He's like, he's like in a rational society, as a result, all 20 people would would stay employed. They would work half the amount of time and they would spend the rest of the time with their family and at at leisure and their pay would remain the same. Mm -hmm. We don't, we could live in that world. We, we as a society can democratically decide that that, is the, that that is the world that we want to live in. Or we can say, you know what? No, the, the, the factory owner who owns this factory gets to keep half the wages that he used to be giving to these workers and gets to just be super rich. Like that is mm-hmm. also a policy choice that we can make. So so my argument would be that, that automation is not the problem policy choices that we make in the wake of automation are, are the main question.
1: So, you know, first of all, I'm so excited right now because you are one of the few people on the left that I've heard who has said that there's value in Adam Smith's vision of capitalism. Right. <laughs> I've been saying that for a long time. I'm like, yeah, look, and, and look, I, I'm, I'm somebody who, you know, has some socialist leanings. But I'm like, the humanistic way in which Adam Smith wrote about capitalism isn't all bad. You know what I mean? Yes.
2: If people should actually but read people don't wealth Do of nations that. rather rather than just read what they're told about it, because it's completely right. different. Totally. Than, you know who you know who loved Adam Smith? Because we're
1: terps. Yeah, right? Karl Marx. Yeah, no, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, he disagreed
2: with him here and there, but like he drew a lot of inspiration from Smith.
1: Right. Absolutely. So I, I want to shift gears. Everybody should, go
2: to, everybody should go to Maryland. That's right.
1: Yeah, exactly. Get that good <laughs> education. All right. More with Ryan Grimm in just a
0: moment. But before we get there, we got to tell you, Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Goldco.
1: So I want to shift gears a little bit. You were the person when you were, you know, uh, well, I guess you're still at the intercept, but uh, you were the person who broke um, the Kavanaugh Chris, Dr. Christine Blasey for Justice Kavanaugh story. Um, can you just kind of take our audience through what occurred there, how you got that scoop, and if you have an opinion about it?
2: Yeah, so that was an interesting one because um, I didn't actually the, the 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 story that I the story that I wrote uncorked the the whole thing. Uh, but I did not, you know, I did not name Christine Blasey Ford and I did not, you know, describe details of, of the, of the allegation. What I, what I had learned is that, uh, Diane Feinstein was in possession of a letter, you know, uh, from a woman describing, uh, an assault that I was told took place while they were in high school and that other Democrats on the judiciary committee, you know, were agitating to be briefed on this letter and to see this letter and that she was refusing to share it with them, that, that she wanted to just push this um, confirmation process through and, and wash her hands of it and be done with it. Because people have to remember the context. Uh, Feinstein was facing a general election challenge against another Democrat because mm-hmm. California has this top two system. And so she was running against a progressive Democrat, uh, Kevin DeLeon, uh, and, you know, the last thing was she was going to rely on a significant number of Republican votes and, and, and moderate Democrats in order to win. Last thing that she really wanted was some drawn out uh, judi- uh, judicial fight where the right is accusing her of trying to tank uh, this, this Supreme Court justice pick. And she, she had relayed, her, her staff had relayed to Blasey Ford that they felt like the allegation was too old. That it wouldn't, that it wouldn't, uh, that it wouldn't derail the nomination. So there was no point in in raising it. And so, but her colleagues disagreed, or or they disagreed in the sense that they wanted they wanted more information. They wanted to know, well, what is this that you're keeping from us? Um, and so I wasn't able to learn a ton about the details of the allegation, but I was able to learn about this this fight among this among the Senate Judiciary committee Democrats and so I reported about that and that evening then under pressure she shared the letter with other Democrats and with the with the White House and it it, and then it quickly from there became public so in retrospect how do you feel about
0: your role in that I mean I know I understand kind of like Having done it, just like the act, an act of journalism, like you know, people will do what they will with it, and you can't you can't be in control of all of it. But that was one of the most dramatic moments the United States has ever seen. Certainly, the most dramatic Supreme Court nomination since uh, Clarence Thomas's nomination. Um, hmm. What what was what was that like to watch that play out? And was there ever a moment where you were either proud of of your role in it, or you said? Oh man, I I don't did I did I set something off here? Did I light a match that I shouldn't have?
2: I I I try very hard to separate those feelings from from the work. Um, because it can be it can be too easy to to center yourself in that stuff. And if you start to do that, then and if you start thinking about the implications of your work, then you're gonna start censoring yourself, you're gonna start second-guessing what you should or should not report sure when i when i really feel like um it is uh it, it's my job to learn things that aren't public uh, that are of that are of public interest and report them and then allow the public like that it's that it's the it's the public's role to you know shape those events you know not and then i should that and then if i that if i try to overthink it uh, that that a that's not my role right um b i'm usually probably not going to get it right like even if you try to like shape events yes like you you're probably going to fail at it and and you might even you know something might even backfire you just don't you don't really know the future right so, but the, that, the, but there yeah. are some threshold questions it seems and and i
0: don't know if that journalism's ever really resolved them but one of them is like like sometimes People report on things that are basically, oh, there's conversations about an allegation. That's that's what you reported on. You reported on that there was this that 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 there was an allegation and that there was and that people and that these Democrats were tortured about not being able to see it rather than sort of the underlying allegation. The same was true, for instance, of the Trump dossier. Whereas, like there was all this conversation about the Trump dossier that served as the predicate for CNN reporting. Oh, the intelligence community is 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 debating this dossier of information that has all these allegations about Donald Trump without sort of sussing out whether or not there was any underlying truth to the original allegation, and and I get like there's a there's um I I You know, I'm tortured by this because I feel like it is a good criticism to say, like, well, why are you advancing this allegation in public if you Mm -hmm. don't know anything about it and you haven't been and you haven't kicked the tires on it and you're using the thin pretext of a debate about the allegation in order to tell people about Mm -hmm. it? I mean, you know, in in the Christine Blasey Ford case, like, you know, we don't have to obviously relitigate the whole thing here, but like, you know, she makes this allegation against him. Uh, and her her best friend, or at least the friend that she said was there, Leland Kaiser, says like she has no memory of any of this. There's no corroborating uh, evidence for it. And then you watch Brett Kavanaugh make this impassioned, deeply emotional stand that if you believe that he was falsely accused here, just a complete injustice that he had to confront in the most emotional possible way. Um I don't know. I would be racked with all sorts of feelings about this if I was in your position. I, I, that's all I'm saying.
2: Right, which is why I, I think, as a journalist, you you shouldn't go you you shouldn't go there. Right. Be, because now I think I think there's some value in, in the in the point that you should that you should not try to launder allegations through a through some thin, thin read of, well, somebody talked about it, so therefore it's news. But I do think, and I think that is the threshold question, like who's talking about it and uh, d- does it matter, you know, in, in what way does it matter that these people are talking about it? So um, in in the case of the Judiciary Committee chair, t- you know, talking about it with other Senate Democrats, that's that's pretty, I think, high above the threshold. Like that's, you know, imagine learning that and and deciding that, you shouldn't share that with the public and then it emerges a year later and you have people absolutely livid and then you have this cloud that's cast over the nomination uh you know that that, you know that's a that's a consequence of making a an editorial decision that you're keeping from the public this thing that you knew to be true but decided not to not to share um so the, and with the dossier, if you have uh, the FBI or the CIA making, you know, world-changing decisions based on based on a document, it's, I think it's important for the public to know what that document is. Yeah.
1: And w- wouldn't that lead to more scrutiny of the document? You know, I, I think that that's actually a positive thing.
0: Well, that, in that case, that was an argument for actually BuzzFeed's behavior, not CNN's. Right. So CNN, right. CNN played the scandal game with it and, and made it deeply suggestive of the fact that there was some credibility to this attack on Trump. BuzzFeed, you know, Ben Smith, who was running it at the time, kind of made the argument in public, which in the end I did in retrospect find a little more compelling than I did at first. Uh, that actually, full disclosure of the document was a better way to give people an opportunity to scrutinize it once it was right. once the allegation
2: was already out right. there. So, in other words, look, CNN was much more like, irresponsible than BuzzFeed was with it. Yeah, you could look at it and be like, "Oh, half this stuff is misspelled." Like, <laughs> yes, there not, is no, no not, there there well-forced. is no Russian
0: consulate in Miami. I think that's right. what they claimed. <laughs> right. um, so, yeah, there's all sorts of things that were on its face false within the document, and mm-hmm. that that of course. Started to provide all the credibility gaps that were identified.
1: Yeah. Now, I know, I know, Ryan, you're a hardcore journalist and you may not want to delve into this, but um, do you think that Democrats or even Republicans or whomever, um, particularly those who, who believe Dr. Blasey Ford, do you think that they held Dianne Feinstein responsible or responsible enough? I
2: th- So I think she mostly escaped scrutiny because of the heat around the actual question itself. Um, yeah, yeah, her, because she made a number of decisions along the way that I think undermined Blasey Ford in the end. In that, in, because, mm-hmm. you know, Blasey Ford came forward when, when Kavanaugh's name was floated as like one of a list of people mm-hmm. that he, she came forward to Anna Eschew was a congress her congresswoman in california and so it wasn't that she waited and you know it, she she ended up one of the things that looked bad about her situation is that it looked like she was coming in in the ninth inning right. to try to, to try to blow up this this process when she had she had come forward right away as soon as he was floated as one of i think there were three maybe it was amy coney barrett him and another or maybe there was seven or something. There was a short. There was a shortlist that right, was right. floating. As soon as she saw the short list, she came forward. If she had come forward, then maybe he's like, you know what? I'm doing Amy Coney Barrett. Mm-hmm. I don't need. I don't need this. Um, and so, but but instead Feinstein shut the whole thing down uh, and said, you know, nobody's going to care. This is high school. How? Um, um, she was how- right in the end. I mean, sorry, I. Let me interrupt
0: you there, Ryan. I So Julie Swetnick, the Julie Swetnick allegations, they were made in the midst of all of this. She wasn't alone. There were others. But Julie Swetnick was the most preposterous on its face. Uh, She alleged that Brett Kavanaugh was a part of gang rape parties that she routinely attended up until the point that she became a victim of one. Um, And it's just like one of those things where, you know, instantly in the public, it was like, what the hell is this allegation? It doesn't sound
2: possible at all. And when and it fell apart quickly because like her age didn't match up um yeah. nothing in it nothing in it made nothing in it lined up what role did these wild uh outside allegations play you think in that process i think that that played in i think that that particular allegation played an unsung role in solidifying his his confirmation yeah um i think Yeah, because at that point, I think a lot of Republicans were rightly like, could could with some justification be like, okay, well, this is crazy, and you you actually saw Republicans just zeroing in on that one, which Mm -hmm. was a which was a much more uh, you know politically easy easy one to go after. Now you could you could I think there was there would also have been a path if Kavanaugh had been like I'm I this was a misunderstanding with between me and Christine. I'm very sorry for anything. This was, thir- you know, this was high school. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Like there was some path there. Perhaps he didn't choose that path. He went with the, I, it wasn't me. Yeah. Uh, you know, his friend went with a, like they identified some other classmate, remember? Who was like living in North Carolina at the time. They're like, it was probably him. Um, and it, they were flailing. But, uh, but when the sweatnik one came out, it's mm-hmm. like this. That's so absurd, so over the top, and fell apart so quickly uh, because there was no corro- There was no, corro- no not only was there no corroboration for it, the the details of it were, were weren't matching up. And she was was she represented by Avenatti as well. Yeah, yeah, right. Which already,
0: which of course, <laughs> right. through Yeah, yeah just, everyone yeah. was like, "What the hell, Avenatti of all people?" Yeah. And I
2: do think I do think that there was a recklessness there in putting that one on on the air, right. Yeah. Who was, I think,
0: what network was that NBC who advanced that? I believe That'll it was be my guess, but uh, it doesn't matter, but, that, right. but you're right. Yeah. it was, it was televised instantly. There was like, there, right. there was no hesitation. They, they, they threw it up there. And that guy actually gets right back to the point that I was making before. It's like, look, you have to do at least some legwork in order to verify the underlying allegations before you advance them to the public. Otherwise you're just meaninglessly or hurtfully slandering someone uh, without you know, a meaningful basis to advance that that kind of story.
1: I I think one of the the biggest things with all of this uh, surrounding Brett Kavanaugh was the failures of the FBI. Now that now we know that the FBI wasn't investigating this when they was, you know, one of the arguments, I actually remember being on the air with Matt Schlopp and we were debating and my whole argument wasn't Brett Kavanaugh's guilty. Like I was like, I don't know. I wasn't there. My whole argument was let's investigate it. And you know, if something turns up, probably nothing will because it's 35 years old, but you know, it should be investigated to the fullest extent because this is an important job interview. Well, isn't and- there some
0: difference though between what the FBI does in a normal investigation and a background check investigation for a nominee? Because well, they didn't even do that though, like if yeah, you, yeah, they
1: did,
2: yeah, right. If you ever had a, I'm sure you guys, if um live in DC some of your friends have gotten some jobs in the government where they have to do a background check and you get a call you're, right. on, the phone for, you're on the phone for 30 45 minutes uh, for somebody for a pretty low level job and they're calling like 10 people Yes. and and the FBI like did nothing for that whole week but if i remember correctly what the explainer for that
0: was that the FBI they had launched a tip line of some kind for the Kavanaugh hearing
2: or at least welcomed
0: people to call it in they received like thousands of tips, most of them from people who were obviously trying to uh, dirty up the process through basic you know, political calls, right. you know what I mean? Like just sort of activists who picked up the phone and called oh, Brett Kavanaugh and they made up something or whatever, right. like, I think the, the, the explanation for this was that the tip line was overwhelmed by activism, which is, and so as a result, right. I may be wrong, but I, that was my understanding, just remembering kind of how this story broke.
2: Right, but they were very credible leads that they had that they that journalists knew about um like her friend like all her like all her friend did the one that you talked about all her friend kaiser leland Mm -hmm. put out a statement what would she have said under oath to you know fbi agents if they interviewed her like we don't know they never contacted her uh there and there were a bunch of other people who just said like yeah i was i told them i was willing to talk and they never got back to me
1: well, we know that um, you've been very gracious with your time and that you were willing to talk. And so yeah, we're really, right. really thankful for that. Um, and we definitely want to have you back um, on Vincent, Jason Save the Nation. Thank you so much, my fellow Turp, my brother. Um, and you can always catch us every Monday, Wednesday, Friday on YouTube, on Facebook Watch, and anywhere a podcast is found. Ryan Grimm approves of us. uh he he endorses us um and we know the journalistic ethics that he that he employs and he likes us so you should like us as well um thanks to my co-host vince colonnades thanks to ryan grimm for showing up uh, my pleasure and check out all our all the other shows on daily caller tv peace
2: see you guys later thanks ryan